Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. How you doing tonight, Ben? I'm doing well, John. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. So, Ben, here we are at the beginning of the second episode of our End Time series. Today, we are going to respond to some of the responses we've been getting from Christians. And then next week, we have some more evidence to support our point that Jesus in the Bible predicted he would return to earth while some of his followers would still be there to see it happen. So that's a little teaser for the next show, but we've been getting a lot of reaction to the shows we've done so far, which is great. Obviously, we are doing the show to generate conversation and engage with people. But some people on Reddit aren't very happy with us. So you've been busy, Ben, going back and forth with people on Reddit. And we started to notice that some of your posts weren't going public. Hmm, that's strange. So we looked into it further and reached out to the moderators. As it turns out, no big surprise, the groups who are censoring our posts are managed by Christians. They did get back to us, though, and basically told us that they didn't like our posts. Now, they couldn't say much more than that because the posts weren't breaking any of their rules. The posts you make, Ben, are not insulting or trolling. Usually they're just asking questions and posting Bible verses, but let's go through some of these verses that they had a big problem with. Here's one. Uh, This is one you posted, Ben, in the Bible subreddit that apparently they have a big problem with. You say, what is the best interpretation of Matthew ten thirty four through 36? Well, I can see why that really is problematic for them. You're basically posting a Bible verse and asking for people's opinion on it. Um, maybe that's not what the issue is. Maybe the actual issue is that it's being posted from something called the Skeptics Bible Project, and that's really what they have a problem with. Yeah, I think of all the posts, that one was the most frustrating um, because I don't really see how that could possibly be misconstrued or interpreted as anything but like a totally respectful question that's open to whatever anybody wants to say. Um, Really just asking for what the interpretation is. um, As I was having these conversations, was attempting to be as innocuous as I could and be very respectful Um, And I asked tough questions and I pushed back on people when I felt that answers weren't um, weren't fully thought through or didn't really seem to address the issue. Um, So it wasn't like I was a totally passive voice, but um, 
but really attempted to be um, neutral, at least in the initial post, especially, so that there would be conversation. I mean, what we want to do is have conversation with people. Um, and what we do on the show is talk about some of the difficult passages interpretively that are in the Bible. And I think that um, the historical critical method of looking at Scripture without the sort of uh, baggage of looking at it theologically and just looking at it like how the text was composed sometimes solves a lot of these problems. Um, but I also think that there's something to be said of just like letting people read these difficult passages or struggle with the text um, because they counter these sort of prevalent notions of what the Bible says and um, what Jesus may have taught that are so accepted but are not really reflected in the text themselves. So, but this was extremely frustrating because I'm literally just asking for an interpretation for the verse. And certainly the verse is controversial. Um, the saying of Jesus is controversial in the verse. But I don't think that me asking that question somehow like makes my motives um, questionable. Yeah, and we can get into that because, um, in my opinion, the motives don't matter. I mean, this is like an academic discussion, and we are uh, raising questions. And I went through your discussions. I read all your comments, and you're completely respectful at all times. Yes, you push back when there's a disagreement, and that's exactly what a conversation is. And that's, I think, like the spirit of what a subreddit should be. Um, if, if your subreddit is just there to... Um, have people that all agree and all uh, echo each other. I don't think that's very interesting. You posted another one here. Does your church teach that there can be women apostles? Because St. Paul did. Again, um, very respectful, very straightforward. You In the post, you um, talk about Romans 16, 7, um, where it clearly has a woman apostle named Junius. And, um, and the... the uh, the community actually engaged. You had 70 comments um, going back and forth. And I'm insulted by the idea that um, they expect the conversation within Bible to be primarily Christians. Um, Christians don't own the Bible. Um, I'm fascinated with the Bible. I enjoy reading it and studying it from a historical standpoint. It's obviously uh, one of the most influential books, if not the most influential book in human history. And um, studying it, I think, is a fascinating thing. Anyone who's listened to this show can tell that that's, it's an interest that, that we all have here. And um, no one can accuse us of saying we're only trying to stay in our own little bubble. I think it's I think it's generally considered like a valiant thing to try to step out of your bubble and talk to people that aren't necessarily in your own circle and belief system. And um, honestly, I've learned a lot. Uh, there are comments that come in from Christians offering a perspective that I haven't thought of before. And I hope and I think that um, many of the Christians reading our posts and comments also um, can learn something. And even if it makes them think, even if it makes them defend their faith from, a, from an angle they haven't addressed before, I think those are all good things. And I think that... Um, it's a microcosm, I think, of what a lot of ex-Christians and uh, people that are no longer believers have dealt with. I can tell you personally, the Christianity that I know, the Christianity in America that I am familiar with, is not open to genuine um, questions, 
to genuine inquisitive minds. It's fenced off just like this subreddit is fenced off. And it's only for um, people that want to be on board with whatever the project is, whatever the, the Christian evangelical project is. If you're on board with that, that's fine. But anything that veers into the left, anything that's a little bit more progressive, um, it's immediately met with outright animosity. And I don't know, Ben, if that's been your take on it also. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, I think it, your idea about Christianity, um, not owning the Bible, I I could not agree with anything more. Um, and most, or a, a significant um, amount of the scholarship that's happened, happened because of people taking a skeptical look at the Bible. Um, that's the last the scholarship that's happened over the last couple hundred years that has really opened up biblical scholarship and taken it to uh, like a whole new level um, before it was purely theological. And now we understand so much more about um, these books and the historical composition. Um, I also think that evangelical Christianity doesn't own the term Christian. Um, so they immediately impugn your motives when you ask questions and the uh, horrible, damning conclusions that I'm coming to would be totally accepted in 80% of the mainstream denominations in the United States um, because they are more liberal. Like the high church uh, pastors know this stuff. Um, they're, the liberal church knows all of this stuff. And so uh, the idea that um, they're allowed to gauge who's a Christian and who's not by these really narrow um, evangelical interpretations of the text is also false. Um, so, it, But a Reddit that's talking about the Bible should never be afraid of a question that's literally based on a text and trying to understand what the Bible says. If you want to have a Reddit that's an insulated conversation um, for, I think, like how you described it, um, the precious moments Christianity, there are plenty of other Reddits for that type of stuff too. But don't pretend that you want to have a conversation about the Bible and then uh, refuse to have it. I think there's a tension that's running through Christianity between um, people that are evidentiary uh, focused and believe in that you can prove Christianity through evidence and uh, the presuppositional approach. And I think that it's an unexamined tension. Um, and a lot of people that are actually operating as presuppositionalists pretend to be evidentialists. And I don't think that it's clearly demarcated in people's minds where they fall, although they operate under those assumptions. So anyone that's using a scientific method or asking questions rooted in um, some sort of a historical um, understanding is deceived by the devil or some sort of an agent of the world and can't possibly understand the text. You know, there's this, this idea that even asking the question is some sort of an attack on their faith or it comes from like a place of trying to destroy their faith, which is not part of the reason that we're asking these questions is we want to sharpen the critiques that we're doing on the show and we want to get input on the issues that we're talking about so that we can either address those issues or be able to have a more complete explanation or uh, fully flesh out the things that we're going to talk about. Yeah, and when you talk about the presuppositional approach versus the evidentialist approach, in my experience, yes, um, I was around uh, a lot of presuppositionalists, but um, when the argument 
when they didn't have a good argument from a presuppositional perspective, they're totally okay using an evangelist perspective. It was kind of like whatever works in the moment. It really was not very consistent. But I want to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, how Christianity, evangelical Christianity, let's say, in America, walls itself off from any sort of scrutiny. And um, that's the difference between like a devotional church and academia. So those that will say, oh, science and academia, that's a religion too. No, it's not. You can, you can question things in academia. You can submit a paper saying everything this guy said is wrong and here's the proof. And you know what? If you're right, you will be celebrated. And that's not the case in churches. And it's no wonder, Ben, I think you made the point when we were talking earlier that this is why people are leaving the churches in droves. I think it was a few episodes ago we talked about a poll about how evangelical Christianity is shrinking in America. And it's becoming more polarized and more politically extreme. But people that want to use their brains are not being treated fairly. Um, there's Their concerns are not being addressed. And part of the reason is because um, conservative evangelical Christianity, it just doesn't stand up. Like the arguments they're making don't stand up to logic. The Bible doesn't support their arguments. Instead of defending it, they basically wall themselves off. And yeah, I've had Christians be completely infuriated at me for quoting them a Bible verse with no context, literally saying, what do you think about this verse? I I have a specific instance in mind where I asked somebody, it was the verse about um, how God commands the Israelites to take the Midianite women that that were virgins to kill everyone else but to, to keep the virgins for themselves. And I just, all I did was read the verse and it was met with instant um, in infuriation from this person who said, well, why are you asking that question? Why are you coming at me with this? And I'm saying, this is the word of God according to you. I'm quoting a Bible verse. And um, to be met with that type of a reception, I think is exactly what we're experiencing here. Ben, this, this whole event brought back a lot of memories for me, um, you know, dealing with the church. And, with, and now I'm realizing, wow, even in the context of Reddit and the internet, I'm trying to re- still trying to reach out to Christians to say, hey, what do you guys think about this? What do you think about that? If you believe this, you should have a good answer for this. And I'm still met with this absolute brick wall that is completely impenetrable. Th- this is like very typical of the interactions that you have. And it's, it's what you have in real life. And it's what you have in these Reddit communities. It's this insulated bubble where people are not questioned or the basic core assumptions aren't questioned. Um, so there will be disagreements, but they mirror the disagreements in the church that are already there, um, like over doctrinal issues or, um, you know, theological interpretations. But no questions... Um, no, even like questions about like the tough passages, like even the passage John mentioned from the uh, from the Old Testament that endorsed slavery and sex slavery and uh, rape and murder and genocide. To even raise those questions immediately makes you someone that's trying to attack um, the Bible. But simply asking the question can get you banned, um, and it doesn't create an environment where thought can flourish if you limit conversation that way. And it's certainly not, I think, what Reddit is designed to do. And I think the sad truth is that the questions and the answers are accepted even by people within 
branches of Christianity. So it's not like these things have to be so threatening. Um, it's only evangelical dogma that doesn't allow these questions to be asked. And I think John brought it up, like the priesthood of all believers is a belief that goes back to the Reformation. Um, and the Reformation certainly, the Reformers certainly believe that it came from Scripture. Um, and that idea is that you don't need a mediator or a priest or some sort of a pastor to tell you uh, what the Scripture is saying. And the Reformers had a reason for that. They wanted to dispower the um, authority of the Pope um, as the ultimate arbiter of Scripture. But, um, but it opened the door to the many interpretations of Scripture that we have today, the many denominations that we have today that started sort of at when the Reformation opened the door. So I think that um, we should be allowed to read this text and question it. We should, we should be allowed to ask questions to the pastor. Um, and if the Bible is the Word of God, whatever that means to people of faith, it should be able to stand up to scrutiny and questions. It shouldn't be threatened by um, someone asking a question or quoting a verse and asking for an explanation. Yeah, Ben, one post that uh, you made on uh, the Bible subreddit is, it says, is Paul contemplating suicide in Philippians 1, through 24? Now, this is something we talked about on the show last time. And um, this is a legitimate question. Scholars have talked about this throughout the years. Um, Cambridge University, I, I quoted a, uh, a paper um, about this issue. That's a legitimate issue. It's a legitimate question. It's not even a question that should question anybody's faith. All it does is make Paul seem more human. I can see pastors using that as a talking point in sermon to help people that are dealing with depression or things like that. And um, the idea that they would look at this as a huge threat, well, I don't like the spirit of where this is coming from, like that's on you because we're raising um, legitimate questions, like you said, and um, none of this stuff should be threatening to you. And if it is, I think that says a lot more about your faith than it does about us. But um, it's not like if you can break through to people, um, they're actually interested in this stuff. Uh, another person on Reddit said that the conversation um, that we had around that passage was actually helpful. And I think she meant helpful in like a way um, where she felt affirmed in her mental health. Um, so I think that these things are actually important for Christians in our age to recognize and can be helpful if you want to use the Bible as some sort of a guide for life or as some sort of a key for um, spiritual growth. I mean, I think theology should be based on a correct interpretation of the text and an understanding of the text. That was the idea always. Um, so certainly we know more about the text um, our theology should adjust uh, because of that. Yeah, and if you guys want to get involved with the conversation, um, you can check us out on Reddit. Uh, Skeptics Bible Project is our username, and we have our own subreddit called Skeptics Bible Project. So that's r slash Skeptics Bible Project. Uh, if you come and join and um, get involved in the conversation, that would be great. We are looking to talk to, like we said, um, not just the skeptics and non-believers, but um, definitely Christians or people of any faith. Um, so join us on there. But Ben, um, furthering the conversation from last episode about the end times, 
Um, and in a different subreddit, we got into a pretty good conversation with Christians about whether or not Jesus would return in the lifetime of his own disciples. And um, just to refresh everybody's memory, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, this is Mark 9.1, it says, Truly I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they have seen the kingdom of God having come in power. And Ben, do you have the Matthew quote in front of you? I do. In Matthew 24, 32 through 34, it says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So there's also a parallel in Luke, and then we talked about how this theme um, seems to run through the entire New Testament, um, where the Apostle Paul clearly has a teaching of the eminency of the return of Christ. This is like all over the legitimate letters of Paul. And, um, and then we see kind of like this, the failed expectation and like how Christians are dealing with that when you look at um, a book like Second Peter or even the Gospel of John, which we talked about in the last episode. But today I wanted to get into some of the responses that we've gotten um, from listeners and people on Reddit. And uh, Ben, I thought maybe you could address some of that. Sure. We'll just kind of work our way down the thread. So the first comment is from Green Platypus. And uh, this person says, we can't know what Jesus believed on the subject, but it's pretty clear that the first generation of Christians thought he would return in their lifetime. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty fair point. Yeah, he says uh, Green Platypus apparently is an unorthodox Catholic. That's what he has under his name. And uh, I think that's a pretty progressive way to look at it, I think, and a correct way to look at it. We can't know what Jesus actually believed. We do. We know what was written and put on his lips, and then you can debate whether or not Jesus actually said those words. But he's right. It's pretty clear that the first generation of Christians thought that he would return in their lifetime. Um, and I don't think you can really get away from that. Yeah. Um, a horrible goose who claims to be a Christian deist says that's a very standard view on the subject and scholarship. Yes. Airman isn't off in left field here. Um, we also quoted, uh, Bart Airman in the post, um, basically just said for nearly 2000 years, there have been Christians who thought that the world was going to end in their own lifetimes. This belief is as ancient as the Christian religion itself, that it can be traced all the way back to the beginning, to the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so I think that uh, a horrible goose is correct as well. So this next one, Ben, comes from Honest God Questions. He's an Orthodox Universalist, and he says, Jesus certainly didn't, but much of the first generation of his followers did expect him to return very soon. And then you say, why would you say Jesus did not? We have multiple sayings and multiple gospels attributing this idea to him. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> so he says, uh, honest God questions, to his credit, continues this conversation. Um, Jesus did not claim that he would return in his followers' lifetimes. Jesus told his followers to keep watch because he would come like a thief in the night at a day and an hour that was unexpected, but he did not say that it would be within their lifetimes, which is an extremely interesting way 
to interpret Matthew. So anything in Matthew that's ambiguous or seems like it could be coming in the future, he wants to hold on to and say is legitimate. Um, but the claim that Jesus makes about his followers being alive when it happens, he, he decides he doesn't believe in. Right. Um, so then I quote the Matthew 24 passage that we just talked about. I mean, my conversations on here are probably 80% just quoting Bible verses back to, to further either the point that I'm making. So I quote the Matthew passage. Honest God questions comes back. St. John Christendom teaches in his homily on Matthew that Christ did not refer to the physical generation of those living contemporaneously to him, but to the living generation of the believers, the church, that the faith would not pass away before these things came to pass. And then he puts a quote uh, from the homily. The, the important part is, how then, one may ask, did he say this generation, speaking not of this generation, then living, but that of the believers? For he is wont to distinguish a generation not by times only, but also by the mode of religious service and practice, as when he says, this is the generation of them that seek the Lord. Um, and that's the St. John Christendom. His point is basically that uh, John Christendom uh, interprets the passage as not meaning um, the believers that were present or the generation that was present, generation in this case. So, I mean, I think the crux of his argument is basically that uh, generation doesn't actually mean generation, but generation means the church. Um, and as long as there's believers, uh, the church, alive, then... Um, this generation is still uh, still there. Yeah, I mean, we addressed this a little bit on the last episode, but I mean, I'll just direct them exactly what you said, Ben. I'm just going to direct them back to the Bible. It's Christians that use this term. Always interpret Scripture with Scripture. When you have something that you don't understand in Scripture, find something else in Scripture that will help further clarify it. That's really like um, a pretty common methodology used by Christians. Well, I would... Take them back to um, Mark 9-1, where Jesus is talking about the second coming, and he talks about all the supernatural things that will happen, and you will see the man, Son of Man coming in the clouds. And he says, Truly I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they have seen the coming of the kingdom of God in power. So now this is not even using the word generation anymore in Mark. And there's a parallel of this in Matthew, I believe. He's not even using the term generation. He's saying, you people who are standing here, you won't taste death. And then the further context goes on when you see that this is exactly what the early Christians in the days of Paul believed. Remember, Paul was writing before the Gospels were even written, and they clearly think that the end is going to come in their lifetime. And then we have... Um, like these references in John and Second Peter that also talk about um, the expectation that Jesus would return while his living disciples are still breathing. So um, the verse itself very clearly says, um, this will happen while my disciples are alive. Even if you are to dramatically reinterpret what the common understanding of the word generation means this generation, the people that are alive now, even if you do um, make that mean, that just means the Jews or it means the generation of believers. It means the church in general. Even if you do that, you still have the problem from all these other verses. Someone commented gray death, who's a, calls himself an atheist. 
um, said St. John Christendom was 300 years after Jesus. He would need to have an alternate explanation to the meaning of that quote out of necessity because the alternate would be that Jesus was wrong and therefore not the Son of God. And I think that's really, like, that's what was happening in Second Peter when they were starting to interpret a day as a thousand years. And that's what ha- was happening when John was written and where you didn't have the same um, ex- expectation that Jesus was coming back necessarily in the lifetime of the believers, or at least uh, less of an expectation. Well, because the believers, had, the actual, they were dying, yeah. yeah, the actual disciples were probably all dead by the time John was written, which is why you have this this very almost funny verse that says the Lord did not actually say that. He said, "What is it to you if I decide to do that?" Yeah. And um, it's such a capitulation. Yeah, and th- and this is typically how it goes here. Um, people they like to. Im- like knee-jerk reactions say, well, you don't know the scholarship or you don't know the context. And as it turns out, we do know the context and scholarship. It's something that we've studied a lot. If they have good scholarship to counterpoint what we're saying, great, please present it. Um, We'll certainly look at it and take it into account. I just want to give props to a couple other people that were responding to Honest God Questions um, he was persistent in holding to St. John Christendom's uh, interpretation. Um, Farkas, Farkarkas <laughs> uh, said, By living hundreds of years later, and the prophecy already being shown as false, he had no choice but to reinterpret it. Um, and he furthers, um, There's credible scholarship to show Jesus was an apocalyptist who believed the end of the world was imminent, as was common held belief at this time. All of this is true. Um, if you don't agree, that's fine. However, citing the teachings of a Christian hundreds of years later does not add credibility to your case, in my opinion, for the reason I gave above. Uh, and then Honest God Questions uh, really comes with the, the real heart of the matter. I reject such scholarship. I said Jesus never said he would return within his follower's lifetime. And I responded to the quote from Matthew with St. John Christendom's teachings to show that the quoted passage does not contradict that. So it's like, no matter what, you can show them the Bible saying it. The Bible didn't really say that when it's saying that. It means generation when it says, you here, you people here will not taste death. You guys standing there will not taste death. Right. Like... It means generation, apparently. So um, it's a. It's. I wonder what other words we can just reinterpret to mean whatever we want in the Bible, if that's the method that we're going to use. But that's not a method that they use anywhere else. It's a method to explain away a problem, and that's not the way a methodology is supposed to work. Yeah, um, you're supposed to solve problems through deductive reasoning or trying to come up with an explanation that makes sense, not. Um, just reinterpreting the problem to not be a problem anymore. And it's a little bit of a straw man, I think, to only use um, the Matthew passage about this generation will not pass away because um, that bolsters the case we're making, but it's actually not the crux of the case we're making. And they're only using what I would call like the weaker, our weaker argument. They're not making, they're not even addressing like the best argument that we're making. Um, so yeah. And, um, this has been a problem obviously within Christianity for a long time. They could, they've known about this problem. I actually personally think this is one of the biggest problems for Christians. I think you have Jesus making a prophecy that clearly did not come true. 
And they love to talk about how, oh, look, the temple was torn down in AD 70, because Jesus also says, um, one, look at these large stones, um, not one stone will be left upon another. And, and then what do you know, in AD 70, the temple was destroyed by Rome. Now, most scholars think that the Gospels were written after that event happened, but even so, if you are going to take great pride in this prediction that Jesus made about the destruction of the temple, what do you do with the prophecy he makes about the timing of the second coming? Of saying, you don't know the day or the hour, but what you do know is going to happen in your lifetime or in the lifetime of some of you standing here. And it just didn't happen. And um, there really isn't a good answer for this. There's all kinds of very complicated theology that are built around this, trying to explain it away. I think on a previous episode, Ben, we talked about preterism. Preterism is basically the belief that says, yes, the second coming did happen during the life of the uh, disciples. And the, and the destruction of the temple was the second coming. Um, and so they actually believe the second coming happened and we're living in like a different age now. Well, at least they're trying to deal with it. That has its own huge batch of problems that I think the majority of Christians aren't comfortable with. Um, but that is one explanation that they give. But yeah, I think that um, Christians really need to wrestle with this. If you're If you believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and Jesus really spoke these words, then how do you deal with that? And Ben, I felt a little bit vindicated because just today we were looking back on the Bible subreddit, and somebody seems to have mirrored our question here from a different subreddit about the um, uh, the end times and this prediction Jesus makes, and basically asked the same question and said, hey, how, how as Christians should we deal with this? And to me, that seemed like a Christian that read our post and was troubled by this and uh, went right back to that source. And it, that showed me that, you know, they're not going to be able to escape this. This is one thing that's great about the internet. Um, it's really hard to censor. It's really hard to stop people from getting information. And I did, my heart was warmed a little bit when I saw that. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like these threads were not popular. They were seen by thousands of people, and that was our thread and also, I think, two threads made by this other person that were literal, like, quote, one quoted Matthew sixteen twenty eight, um, and another one quoted, I think, maybe one of the Mark passages. Um, it's really fascinating. One thing that they try to do um, is kind of divide the different uh, predictions into different events. So... Um, Jesus is talking about his resurrection, um, or uh, Jesus is talking about his transfiguration. Um, but if you really line those passages up, I mean, he's talking about the Son of Man coming to power. So, like, how many times does that actually happen? Like, is it going to happen 15 times, or all of these events, the Son of Man coming to power? Um, clearly, he's talking about coming back um, in some sort of, like, a messianic return, uh, like an apocalyptic return. Um and again, I'm using he's talking about in the sense of this is what the Gospels say that he was saying. Um, 
And not only were the Gospels saying it, but we know that's what the early church believed very explicitly, because you have him talking about, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And then what does Paul say? Paul says, we will be caught up in the air with him. Um, so this is very explicitly what they actually believe. To try to rationalize your way out of it by making it much more metaphorical, I don't think really stacks up to what the words of the Bible actually say. And there's a bunch of events that precede the Son of Man coming to power um, that don't happen before the transfiguration, that don't happen before the resurrection, that don't happen, um, you know, uh, before these other yes. events that people are claiming. So, you know, even if it's about the res- the resurrected Christ returning, um, we have all these predictive events about future things happening. Um, so it's clear that that's not what the passage is talking about. Um, and yeah, I think the early Christians, the, the clearest thing that we know is that early Christians had a belief that, um, this was going to happen within their lifetime. And that's like the earliest accounts that we have of Christianity, which is Paul and his earliest letter has the strongest expectation for this happening, um, because it's the earliest Christian belief. And, um, and Paul is is almost doing damage control the rest of his letters um, to maintain this belief um, in spite of all other circumstances. So in Philippians, when he's in prison, he still maintains this belief. Uh, in Corinthian, in the Corinthian church where people were dying off, he says, "No, no, no, don't worry. When Christ comes, we'll, we'll, they'll meet up with us in the sky too." They'll meet up with us, like uh, like as if he will still be there, not in the sense that we'll all be dead and then raised again. Um, and even in Romans, where it becomes abundantly clear to Paul that he may not make it to see uh, the resurrected Christ, he's still hopeful that it will happen in his lifetime um, and still seems to be holding on to that theological belief. So he never gives up on that theological belief. Yeah, and I think I said this in the last episode too, but there's there's not a lot in the New Testament that you would see as laying out what the Christian church should look like going off like thousands of years into the future. Most of it is very much geared toward the end is near. Um, Jesus uses the word soon, like this will happen soon. What does the word soon mean? Young earth creationists think that um, when that was written, the earth was only 4,000 years old. So certainly it's, it wouldn't mean, soon wouldn't mean like half the, half the age of the entire earth. Um, the long-term like Christian church going off into the future is something that Christians have to derive from later um, books, which are not even authentic. Like we talked about the pastoral epistles, which talk about deacons and elders and bishops and how the churches should be arranged. Well, Paul didn't write that. And um, I know we talk about that a lot. We'll probably do like a whole series on uh, forgeries in the Bible. But um, I think it's important to note that like the parousia, the coming of Christ, the um, second coming, the apocalypse, is really what I think the crux of the New Testament is about, and the fact that it's coming soon cannot be avoided. Yeah, it's the interpretive key to everything, really. Um, Because the reason that Paul, like, I mean, you just said it, like, the reason that Paul is not giving you... um, the structure of Christian government or how Christians should engage in the cult, the outside culture or um, how the church should build itself to be resilient in like uh, the long term. Like that's not his focus at all. He's like, love each other, um, 
because Christ is coming soon. Um, you know, uh, stick to my teachings. Christ is coming soon. And the Gospels, it's the same thing. Like the entire theology is shaped by this idea that Christ is coming soon. And once you understand that, reading the text makes a lot more sense. If you don't understand that, the text don't make a lot of sense. Um, it's a question that's like looming there um, unaddressed because they make this explicit claim so many times. And I think that um, I also completely agree. We have these later texts that people build the theology of um, the later coming of Christ from. And um, those texts are useful to tell us what Christians were believing and how they dealt with this problem. But let's be honest, like Second Peter was not written by Peter. These are forgeries in the name of people, um, and I have a problem um, formulating theology off of books that we know are essentially built on a lie. And um, I know that questions the canon, which maybe isn't allowed in um, evangelical thought, but I think that that's a, also a discussion for how to build a theology that understands the Bible in a historical way. Like I said, to me, it's actually what I think is like one of the biggest um, problems that Christianity has, the one of the biggest problems that like conservative evangelical Christianity has. And um, the answers to get around this have really not been very good at all. But I encourage you all to um, write to us. Let us know what you think. I would love your opinion on this and sure Ben would too. And uh, join in on the discussion on Reddit. Um, but Ben, what do you think? Uh, do you think we have time for another Bible versus Bible? I'm sure we do. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. Okay, so today on Bible versus Bible, we have two verses, both from the Gospel of John. So, John 5.31 says... And this is Jesus talking. If I bear witness to myself, my witness is not true. And then John 8.14 says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. <laughs> so you, you have two verses which, I mean, definitionally um, negate each other. They definitionally contradict each other. Um, I don't see any way if you are a, you know, a literal inerrantist that say that um, Jesus said these words and this is the inerrant word of God, how you would really get out of this as being a contradiction. Um, but I, I really want to hear your uh, take on this, Ben. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes, I mean, probably the first thing people would do was say, look at the context. So maybe we should just examine the context really briefly. Um, so 531, um, Jesus is talking about what people say about him. Um, he, uh, talks about John the Baptist, um, and his testimony. Um, but he talks about how he has testimony that's even weightier than John's, um, and that he doesn't get his glory from human beings, but from, uh, his father and, um, basically that his authority comes from Moses, um, so he's claiming that he, he doesn't have to, um, testify for himself, um, because he has all these other witnesses that testify on his behalf, John the Baptist, uh, Moses, uh, God the Father, 
Um, so that's the context of uh, of John five. Um, what is the the verse? Uh, it looks probably John eight fourteen. Okay, so there it's another passage where he's talking about um, his testimony. Um, he's talking about the, being the light of the world, and the Pharisees uh, challenge him, basically saying like, "Oh, you're testifying for yourself." Um, and Jesus is saying, even if I testify on myself, my testimony is valid. Um, and then again, he kind of claims uh, authority that's coming from where he came from, uh, from God and the authority to pass judgment. Um, so it's interesting. I don't really see contextually something that's like that helpful. It seems like he's he does a very similar thing in both passages where he's claiming authority um, because of uh, someone else. Um, but one passage, he's saying that he can testify on his own behalf because of the authority that he gets from his father. And then the other one, he says, um, if I testify on behalf of myself, my testimony is false. But look, these other people are testifying on my behalf, John the Baptist, Moses, God the Father. So it's a very interesting um, contradiction. And the fact that they both are in the Gospel of John is also fascinating um, because it's not the type of... Um, I mean, John is on its own anyway, um, not part of the synoptics, but it's not like a a difference in two synoptic um, uh, redactions or the way that the synoptics tell the story. Um, it's internal to John. Um, so why would the author of John um, contradict himself in this way? That's the, the question that I guess you have to tarry with. Yeah, and Ben, we've done some other Bible versus Bibles internally to John where he's done this before. I don't have the references in front of me, but um, this isn't the only time. And, you know, what we know about the Gospel of John is that um, it's very unlikely it, one, one author sat down and wrote the Gospel from start to finish. It definitely seems to be the work of um, a few different authors or redactors or editors. And um, that could be an explanation for this. We don't actually know. I mean, this is one of the fascinating things about uh, textual criticism is you have weird things like this, and then you have to dig in, look at the original languages, and um, try to determine what could be going on here. Look at the manuscript tradition and see, are there any variants? Um, and that's, that's part of what I think the fascination is for us. But again, coming back to just inerrancy more generally, like these are the words that are in the Bible now. These are the words that are claimed by um, conservative Christians to be fully the word of God, fully the, like if Jesus spoke these words, if it says that Jesus spoke these words, he spoke those words. And you know what? They contradict each other, like plainly on, like, on the surface and in the context. So I'm reading from Defending Inerrancy, which is a Christian site, which tries to um, offer a Christian perspective on these problems and, um, to their credit, tries to answer them um, rather than just run away from them. And uh, they say this, There are two ways to understand this verse, talking about, um, I guess, the John 5 passage. Hypothetically, or actually, on the first interpretation, Jesus is saying, in essence, even if you don't accept my testimony about myself, you should accept that John the Baptist in whose ministry you rejoiced. So, again, what I think they're doing here is adding in words that aren't actually there to get out of the problem. That's not what Jesus says. Um, if you make Jesus say that, then yeah, then he's not um, 
contradicting himself, but the problem is Jesus didn't say, even if you don't accept my testimony. He said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Um, and and I other- mean, it it gets ridiculous. Like, it's the same thing with the John Christendom argument. It's like, the word has to be inerrant, so uh, we're going to totally change the word itself. Like, if you have an inerrant text... I would think that you have to preserve that text in order for it to be inerrant. But if you're going to change what Jesus is saying, then you're changing the text to make it mean what you want it to mean. You're not keeping an inerrant text. You're changing the text to mean what you want it to mean. So it's it's so frustrating. Um, Like that, it it is not what the text says. Right. And we've said this a lot. What a lot of Christians are doing, whether they realize it or not, they're writing their own gospel. They don't like the gospel. They don't like, you know, the fact that um, Jesus says you have to hate your family. They don't like that says that it says you have to give away everything you own to the poor to be a follower of Jesus. They don't like um, contradictions like this. They don't like the fact that Jesus said he would return in the lifetime of his followers. They don't like a lot of things that we could go on and on and on and on. And if you listen to the show, we are going to highlight them because Christians in church will have you sit in their sermons Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, year after year after year, and listen to a pastor talk where he carefully cherry picks around these difficult issues for the most part. And there's no one that is allowed to raise their hand and ask a question during a sermon because you're hearing from some authoritative man who is going to tell you the way it is, but he's not going to tell you the things that we're saying here on this show. I know there's some exceptions and where there are more honest pastors out there and people that are presenting the truth, like my hat's off to them. I don't have a problem with them. I'm talking mostly from my experience, and I think Ben would would concur his experience as well, dealing with the way that Christians deal with these passages. Yeah, it's just frustrating and uh, and problematic, and and I also think it's like if even if you want to hold that, I mean, if you want to hold to the idea that Jesus literally said this, I mean, is it even a sin for Jesus to contradict himself in two different contexts to say that one thing is one? Well, it is. If like everything Jesus says has to be endowed with this supernatural spiritual truth. Um, and even that is not necessarily something I think that's claimed by the Bible. That's a doctrine that's developed over time. Um, so I think like one of the things is like that we're trying to do is just get you to question a little bit. And, you know, I don't think that this question, that this questioning or even recognizing this contradiction has to be a threat to your Christian faith. What should scare you, and this is what we found, I think, in our discussions, is it's the Christians that think any minor contradiction will bring the whole house of cards down. Because if you start to question one thing, well, then you can just question everything. And that's why they're so resistant to asking questions. And that's part of the frustration for someone like myself and I think like John that are like inquisitive by nature um, and don't just accept things at face value but want to actually understand them and want to also seek out expert 
opinions on things and speak out and seek out learned people's opinions on um, on issues. And I think there's a real resistance to that. And it's because they're just afraid that even the smallest problem will bring the whole house of cards down. Now, I don't think that that's true, but that does seem to be the attitude of evangelicals. Yeah. And maybe it won't bring the whole house of cards down, but maybe it should. And maybe it should bring down their version of Christianity. If they have a, this hyper-literal um, version of the text that isn't even supported by the text itself, maybe that should maybe that house of cards should come down, and maybe they should think much more seriously about more liberal forms of the church um, that have developed through the ages because of these exact problems, because they realize that oh, wait a second, God's omniscience can't be supported by Scripture, and the inerrancy of Scripture can't be supported when you actually read the text. And they've evolved, and the church has evolved with it. And there's in the conservative evangelical church, there's just so much resistance to going down that road. And I agree with you. I don't think it will bring down the whole house of cards, but it's definitely what they're afraid of. Yeah, it definitely threatens the ideology that goes along with the house of cards. Or it goes along with the ideology that goes along with um, evangelical versions of Christianity. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that um, there's a real problematic um, aspect to this stuff that should be questioned and um, and its foundations should be uh, shaken for its own good. And I think that you know, liberal Christianity has understood this stuff and has adapted to it. And there is resistance in conservative Christianity, but conservative Christianity should also understand that there's been doctrines that have evolved in conservative Christianity to get them to where they are, too. So certain things that were accepted at one point in time as being uh, what the Bible was saying and may have been what the authors were saying, like we've talked about the celestial bodies being uh, like hanging and suspended so they could fall conceivably, or um, the way that the earth, uh, they thought, was constructed, flat with four corners. Um, and, um, you know, they we don't have that same understanding now, and no one would force you to have that understanding just because that's what the, the Bible writers, um, the worldview that they had. So there are ways that understanding the text has changed even among the most conservative people, but it's just the resistance that's happened in the last 200 years or so um, uh, with this rise of fundamentalism um, that has really like created this insulated community. And I think that's like the main thing that John and I are um, attacking as needing to come down is this insulated fundamentalist bubble um, that is... Um, not only unscientific, un, uh, anti-intellectual, and doesn't allow um, any type of dissent, it's also potentially dangerous. Yeah, well said, Ben. I think that um, you're absolutely right. Modern fundamentalism has really just devolved into stupidity in many cases, I'm, I'm sorry to say. But there used to be a very strong strain of intellectualism um, within the church and where these questions were taken very very seriously you know, the seminaries of Yale and Princeton were founded by Protestant Christians who um, wanted to dig into the Bible and study these things. I think about someone like B.B. Warfield, who um, no Christian, no modern evangelical Christian would criticize B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield believed in evolution. He didn't believe in a literal creation the way that um, most creationist 
um, fundamentalists do. And um, the like, for instance, modern creationism is completely at odds with everything we know about the observation of the world and what science teaches us. And honestly, like understanding the Bible that we're not going to, I don't want to take too much of a left turn into uh, creation evolution, but just having a um, a little bit more of an elevated understanding of the Bible and uh, will um, lead you away from some of these ridiculous um, literal interpretations. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at three Bible verses, two real and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to read through the verses and decide which ones are real and which one is the false witness. Take it away, Ben. Okay, number one. The boys grew up and Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Number two, and Isaac loved Esau because he had named in the land where he had buried his father. And number three, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence. His brother Esau came in from hunting. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so... Jacob and Esau, the Jacob and Esau story, I unfortunately don't have it memorized. So this is going to be in like virtually impossible for me. It's going to be a crapshoot because I know all of these elements of the story are in the story, right? I mean, I don't see any of these as being um, like not, a, not in line with uh, the story that I know of um, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. Yeah, this is not easy. Um, I, th- I mean, Esau was definitely the hunter. He was the hairy one. Jacob, I think, I think staying home among the tents is uh, probably the way that they describe it. Um, this is not easy. Um, because none of these verses, like, remind me necessarily of, like, like the wording doesn't immediately jump out to me as like, this is from the story, but I know they're like, you said they have elements of the story. Um, Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence. His brother Esau came in from hunting. So the, so the one that stands out to me is two because I mean, Isaac loved Esau maybe, um, but he had named in the land, which, he had buried his father. I feel like I don't know if that's true. I think number two may be the false witness, but this could be really tricky. I mean, I know this story exists in the Quran also, or some Islamic uh, tradition. Maybe it's not the Quran, um, and I'm sure in like the Talmud, there's commentary and. Um, so this could really, like any of this could be from almost anywhere, but I'm going to say number two is the false witness. I'm, I'm going to say number one, and I don't really have a great reason. Um, 
I think number two and three some seem a little bit more familiar to me. But um, so Ben is picking number two, and Isaac loved Esau because he had named in the land which he had buried his father. And I'm choosing number one. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. I will now open the sealed envelope to see what the answer is. Okay, so I chose number one. Let's start there. Number one, the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter. Comes from Genesis 25-27. So I am wrong. Um, and then Ben chose number two. Well, let me start with number three now that I'm looking at this, which no, neither of us chose, which is Genesis 27:30. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. Number two, and Isaac loved Esau because he had named in the land which he had buried his father, comes from a AI Bible generator, which tries to... Oh, yeah. Which tries to um, replicate... Bible verses. Yeah. I'm not going to get fooled by no computer. So, Ben, I don't know if uh, I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you know the relationship between Isaac, Jacob and Esau? So, Jacob was the father of Isaac and Esau, and um Isaac was born first or Esau was born first. No, okay. Jacob and Esau were the sons of Isaac. Right. right. Okay. And when Esau was born, um, he Jacob was holding on to Esau's foot. They were they were brothers, but born seconds apart. So the idea was always that Jacob was trying to get the uh, the blessing of being the firstborn. And then he eventually uh, Esau was traditionally this big hairy guy who was a hunter, right. and Jacob was in the house, so had access to his father. And his father, I think, had lost his sight, or his sight was going. Yeah, he fooled um, him by so he wears the fur of an animal and uh, says, you know, give me your blessing of uh, the birthright because I think Jacob was close to death, and uh, Jacob felt the animal fur, thinking it was human uh, hair, which of course they feel exactly the same. Well, clearly you have a lot of knowledge of this passage and it served you well because you sniffed it out and and got the correct answer. Yeah, it's uh that's interesting. There's a lot of um I don't want to get sidetracked on AI, but that's uh an interesting thing the Bible generator. You could probably create a lot of havoc with that. Yeah. I have nothing well, more to say. Yeah, great job, Diana, as always, and uh, I guess I'm the champ this week. Well, congratulations, Ben, and thank you, Diana. Um, so I thought we'd end the show today with a quote. Tell people there's an invisible man in the sky who created the universe, and the vast majority will believe you. Tell them the paint is wet, and they have to touch it to be sure. George Carlin. The Skeptic's Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. 
Ooh.